0: Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening.
1: Heavenly Father, thank you that um, you are with us um, when we're a mess, <laughs> and that when we don't have all things together, and that you are holding all things together by your power, and by your might. And it is all for your glory and for your honor. So thank you, Father, that you appear to us. You make yourself known to us. Thank you, Father, that you came. You sent your Son so low to save us. Thank you, Father, that we don't have to have all the right answers, that we don't have to know everything, that we can trust and look to you and know who you are, and who you say you are. And that's true, and that's good, and that's enough. Father, I ask that you use my hot husband, that you would speak so clearly through him to us. Would you make our ears open and our hearts soft to receive your sweet gospel? Spirit, I ask that you would convict and comfort us when we need. Ultimately, Father, we would just learn to love you more and that you would be glorified. It's in your son's name, amen.
0: Amen, you guys can be seated. Um if you couldn't tell uh this is my wife. <laughs> so there's that. Um That's all right. It is what it is. Okay, so if you also can't tell I am not the shining beacon of athleticism surprise, right? Yep, yeah, what? I know, right, what? So when I was in school, I remember uh, I never really did sports, that wasn't really my thing. I liked watching, but I didn't like participating in doing them, so what I did was I was a part of a thing called Odyssey of the Mind. Does anyone even know what that is? Like one oh, a few of you do, that's so great. So many people I told about that when I lived in Missouri and they just looked at me for a long time. But here in Burke County, I was a part of Odyssey of the Mind at Heritage Middle School and I loved it. So if you don't know what it is, it's basically creative problem solving. Team members work together, at length to solve this kind of predetermined problem and present their solution to the problem at a competition. So for us, like we had to build a balsa wood structure that could withstand a ton of weight and somehow work that into a play. Um, so it, it was this really creative kind of way for us to work together. And, and you would go to these competitions, you would compete. And so it was twofold. How creative was, was your team? How, uh, how you know, energetic were they in, in coming up with the, the solution to this problem? And then also, how much weight could your structure withstand before it broke? And so we did really well in the regionals. Uh, we, we did so well that we were actually invited to participate in state. And this was like the most competition that Chiboy Bill had ever done. So I was hyped, getting ready. We go to Raleigh. We're excited. It's, it's going to be so much fun. We're all there together. And all of a sudden, we show up, and we're in this arena, and it is packed. There are kids on top of kids on top of kids from all over the place. There's a team from Indonesia, and I'm like, what is happening? Where are we? And we just lost sight. We freaked out. We started kind of um, fighting and getting confused. And like, are we going to do this right? Do you know where you're supposed to go? One guy was totally there for just a girl, and that guy was me. So there was this whole problem, right, happening where we weren't really focused and paying attention, and our coach sees that we're just so scattered. None of us really are paying attention to what we're trying to do, why we came together. And so he just Dips out while we're kind of grouped up. He's just gone. We're there left with a couple parent volunteers. They have no idea where he went. And he comes back and he's carrying a trophy. And he slams it on the table and he says, why are we here? We all stopped and looked at the trophy and we realized, oh yeah, we're here to compete. We're here to win this. That's what's happening in our text today. Jesus had just given his disciples an incredibly difficult challenge. He tells them that they are supposed to pick up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him. They are shell-shocked, totally bewildered that Jesus is supposed to be the Messiah, this long-promised, delivering son of God, this one who's going to bring about redemption and restoration. He's going to restore Israel, right? And he tells them that he's going to die, and he calls them to join him. And they're confused. And Jesus here, as he brings up the inner three of Peter, James, and John to this mountain, he is putting the prize before them, reminding them, don't lose focus. What are we fighting for? What, are, what is our aim? What is our focus? So again, last week, we looked at Peter's profound realization that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus had taught them, again, the demands of discipleship. And he told them that some would not taste death until they saw the kingdom of God coming in power. And today, we see that dramatic display of power. And we're going to start with The glory of Christ. So, if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter nine. That's where we're going to be spending our time. And like Hannah said in the announcements, we have Bibles on the table. And so, um, I know a lot of us maybe grew up and we read maybe the King James, and so you get some these and those, and you're a little confused. We use a translation called the English Standard Version. It's really excellent. It's thought. It's not thought for thought or form dynamic. It's word for word. It's literal. It's great, but it's also readable. Right? So if you, want a, if you want a copy of that, we have those on the table. Just take it. It's our gift to you. We want to put a Bible in your hands that you can understand. So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2, it says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, and they appeared to them, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So if you've been with us as we've been studying Mark, you might automatically notice something a little weird here. So anytime you read the Gospel of Mark, what makes it unique is Mark is always just kind of action point, action point. Let's go, let's go, let's go. He's really quick. It's the shortest Gospel for a reason. It's always immediately and then. But here, he gives a specific set timestamp. Six days later. This is super unique. Again, he's more often saying stuff like immediately. So why does he give us a specific time? Well, I think he does this in this case because Peter is his source, right? Peter is the one who is encouraging and telling him his story of of Jesus. And this is super significant for Peter. You can almost see Peter talking to Mark saying, yeah, I confess Christ as Lord. And then a week later, this happened. This incredible moment. And it's special again, right? This is Jesus's inner circle. So he has the 12 disciples, but he has these three that he's really poured a lot of focus and attention on. And that's Peter, James, and John. And they're invited with Jesus to go up this mountain, but they can never imagine what they were about to see. Peter records in great detail what they saw. It says that Jesus was transfigured before them. Now that word, transfigured, might make you think of the word metamorphosis, right? We think about that when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. This almost like, it seems bewildering change, so significantly different, so unique. It's this abrupt and sudden change, and Peter is at a total loss with how to describe it. It actually kind of reads a little rambly in the text. Peter's like, his clothes, they became radiant. I mean, just intensely white, like nobody on earth could bleach them. This is Peter's attempt to try to give words to what he's seeing. And we often describe color by comparison, don't we? I mean, you know, the red sunset, the blue sky. And what he's trying to say is, this is a white like I've never seen white before. It was so intensely bright. And though I'm pretty sure they weren't wearing name tags, somehow they also recognize that Jesus is there with Elijah and Moses. They're standing there with Jesus, but what's interesting to note is they're not radiant. They're not shining. It's just Jesus, intensely bright, and these two men. And you may be wondering, okay, this is really weird, right? We've been reading through the Gospels, it's been story, it's been narrative, and now all of a sudden we get this kind of weird vision, like, what's happening here? Why are Elijah and Moses there? Well, Elijah and Moses represent two things, the law, that's Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. They were both great deliverers, and together they represent the prophetic tradition that points to the Messiah, Right? This is kind of God putting his stamp of approval for these men to see that this indeed is the real deal. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. With their appearing, the law and the prophets are signaled as being fulfilled in Jesus' coming. It's beautiful because the Messiah has come and has brought near the kingdom of God. Now, we see Moses, right? And you may be thinking, all right, this starts to feel a little familiar, Because if you know the Old Testament story, you know Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, God delivers the law to Moses, you know Moses hammers in, maybe you've seen the old school movie Ten Commandments, and you see Moses coming down with these stone tablets. That might be what you're picturing. But this is different. This isn't Mount Sinai all over again. God isn't delivering to Jesus' Ten Commandments. No, friends, this is a gospel mountain, not a law mountain. Because here the law of God and the grace of God converge in the one who is God incarnate. That is, God become man. The fulfillment of all of the Old Testament that had been long prophesied is right there in Jesus. And Mark is inviting you and I to look at Jesus and to believe his gospel. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians. He's so bewildered, so confused by who Jesus is, because Jesus is so unlike what anyone had thought the Messiah would be. Again, they thought the Messiah was going to come with prominence and power and be this political revolutionary that would lead Israel into the new promised land. But he came as a humble, peasant servant to seek, to serve, and love. This is what Paul writes in Philippians 2. He says that, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I think some of us probably would do well to recalibrate our view of who Jesus is. Jesus is not simply the rabbi that's walking around Israel, teaching people and healing and fishing with the boys. Right? All of those things are true. Jesus did do those things, but he's so much more. His humanity is a deliberate and intentional cover to conceal for a time who he is. Jesus is in very nature God. And these three men get a glimpse of him in all of his glory and splendor. They get to behold what one day every eye will see. They saw the triumphant, glorified Christ. In verse 8 of Philippians 2, we read, And being found in the human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus, God in the flesh, the one who was so holy that he radiated so intensely bright that they could barely even look at him, he is the one who went to the cross to die. For you, for me. And frankly, friends, it defies imagination. We're so numb to it because we're so familiar with it, but it is absolutely befuddling. It is bewildering. It is unbelievable that this Jesus would die for us. Jesus is transfigured before them. And friends, this is a reminder and a picture for what we celebrate every year at Christmas, right? The incarnation that we see God become man. The eternal God of the ages is there before them. It's the same God who became a baby that was put into the hands of those whom he had created. In our culture, again, we equate prominence with a lack of having to do things, right? If you know someone who's rich, they don't shop for themselves. They don't drive themselves around. They have someone else do it for them. But that's not what Christ does, is it? He is in very nature God, but he steps down. He puts on flesh. He serves. And he is obedient to the point of death. This death was one that you and I rightly deserve. But by confessing Christ as Lord, we can be reconciled to God. We can be brought near to God. Right? We turn from our sins. We receive forgiveness for our sins. That's what we're all about. Because we have beheld the glory of Christ. We now want to tell the world that. In college, I, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was in Bible college college. I knew I wanted to be in ministry, but had no clue what that specifically meant. I worked for our admissions department, so I would travel all over the country, going to different conferences and events, talking to prospective students, trying to get them to come to our college. And we went to, I'll never forget this because this is where God made himself known to me. I went to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, right? It's really close to Hershey. So if you know where the chocolate is, just keep going. So I went to Harrisburg and I was excited to be there because it was a really unique town. I'd never really been up to the Northeast and I I liked it a lot. Lots of really cool architecture, lots of really neat things. And I walked around and it was that day, walking around the city on my day off, that God stirred my heart for church planning. Because I went to different building after, bu- after building after building. Every city we went to, there would be these huge churches that I would love to go and walk through. I love old church architecture. I think it's beautiful. I like walking through sanctuaries. And usually these churches are open. They don't really care if you come in and see. It's totally fine. Every single church in this town was locked. I went to six different churches before I gave up. I couldn't understand how could these beautiful buildings that are built for the express purpose of communicating the amazingly good news that God of the universe had stepped into human history in the person of Jesus, how could they not be open? And then even beyond that, there were many churches that I thought were just not open, but then realized they were actually closed. Windows were boarded up, sign was empty. What was going on? How could they have deteriorated? Friends, that's why we're here in Morganton. That's why we set these chairs up on a soccer field and attempt to make this somewhat of a sacred place because we want people to know this good news, that Jesus Christ is alive, that because of his death, burial, and resurrection, there is hope and life eternal, that in the midst of a world where there's so much chaos and backbiting and fighting, there is actually hope. Coram exists because we have experienced the power of the risen Christ. We have beheld his glory, and we will carry it to the ends of the earth. So we see first the glory of Christ, and let's see next the foolishness of people. right, verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. This is hilarious to me. Like I, w- I was in the office reading this with Michael and we just laughed because like, what is Peter talking about here? What is he doing? Pe- Peter was, as was often the case, the first one to speak up and he offers to build some tents for the guys. And, and I love this because I'm sure when he told Mark, he was like, yeah, Jesus revealed himself in all of his glory and splendor. The law and the prophets were being fulfilled before us. And he's like, great, what did you do? And he's like, I said, hey, y'all, you want some tents? Because um, we could do that if you needed it. And you got to wonder if Mark's like, you said what? And Peter's like, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking, man. I was, I was terrified, right? And Mark points that out. He didn't know what he was saying. He was terrified. Of course he was terrified. This one that they had been following, he had just started getting a picture of who he was. Man, he heals the sick. He, he makes the, the lame walk, the blind see. Maybe there's something to this. You know, I think he's the Christ. And now all of a sudden he's like, oh my goodness, you are indeed God become man. He's so confused, right? In a way, we can appreciate Peter's remarks, can't we? Because maybe you've gotten around someone that you hold in high esteem and you stumble over your words. Maybe you say something goofy. But you have to wonder, what's happening here? Like, I mean, is Peter actually placing Jesus on equal standing with Elijah and Moses? Like, is that what's happening here? Or does Peter think that up on a mountain in isolation, that's where God wants them? Just stay up there forever? Of course not. Peter is so excited and he's so scared, he just has to say something, right? His mind is only going to catch up to his words after the cross and the resurrection. And friends, this is a reminder of what we saw last week. You and I will never understand the person and work of Christ apart from the cross and the resurrection. If you take those things away, right, Jesus is at best a moralist and at worst a self-destructive fool. If we leave out the cross, there's no atonement. And if we leave out resurrection, there's no victory over sin. And in sinful weakness, like Peter, we would avoid the cross. We'd want to stay on the mountain and make ourselves comfortable. But in contrast, Jesus is going to embrace the cross. He's going to ascend Calvary's hill, and he's going to drink the cup of suffering filled with the wrath of God. But we see that God doesn't just leave Peter in his foolishness, does he? No, God in his kindness now speaks, and we see third, the command of God. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. If you're familiar at all with the biblical narrative, you know that oftentimes we see God come in the presence of a cloud, right? We think of a cloud that descended on Mount Sinai when God spoke to Moses. This is pretty standard biblical imagery. But these men are not hearing a story. They are are experiencing this right there, right now, on the mountain. They are seeing this revelation happening before them. They hear directly from from God's command, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. That was the command. God is saying the law and the prophets were only partial. They were only partial expressions. But right here is the final statement. Listen to him. It's pretty amazing when the glory drops out, right? Right? When the glory dissipates, they're simply left with Jesus. Now, two sides to this that I think can both support and kind of lean against each other. On the one hand, again, Jesus has just given the most difficult teaching to date to his disciples. You need to deny yourself, you need to take up your cross, and you need to follow me. And in and of itself, right, we hear that and we can be understandably a little hesitant to do that no, thank you, Jesus. I don't want to do that. Right? To to that hesitancy, to that confusion, God's voice speaks up and says, this is my son. Listen to him. Follow him. But on the other hand, many of us, we've had opportunities to enjoy these kind of mountaintop experiences of our faith. Times when, man, it just felt so real. Times when things were going so well only to have that experience end, and then we descend back to the valley. It's at those times we need to keep this picture in mind. Because see, the moment had ended for the disciples. God's glory had been revealed through Jesus. The the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah are there. God speaks audibly from the clouds, and then it all ends, but Jesus is still present. Moses checked out. Elijah's gone. The glory had dissipated, right? The cloud had ascended, but Jesus remained. Once the vision fades, Jesus continues faithfully with his disciples. And it may not look as glamorous as it once did, but quorum Deo, his presence, is still with us as well. The truth is, the mountaintop experiences, right, those are the things God uses to energize us, to strengthen us through the valleys. And I wonder if you need to be mindful this morning of who he is, to get a grander vision of who he is, to think of him in his glory, bathed in light, and that that, friend, would help you get through Monday because he's still with you. You see, writing decades later in Second Peter, Peter actually still writes about this day. He can't stop thinking about it. It's one that he would never forget. It's a reminder when the days are long, when the days are hard, we can look to who Jesus is and who he has called us to be. This is a moment of resolve for Peter. Have you had that kind of moment? A moment of resolve of when Christ made himself real to you. Here's what happens. We, we, we stake our hope like a flag waving we remember this is when Christ made himself known to me, right? For me, I know that day in Harrisburg. I know the day my wife and I realized Morganton was the place God wanted us so that when the road gets hard, and it does, I can look back to that moment like a flag waving in the wind and remember what Christ has called me to. The voice of God commands us to listen to his son, Jesus, to give him our ears to have eyes only for him. This is what we need, especially when the road gets hard. And the road gets difficult, and that's what we see finally. The road is difficult, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. In typical fashion for Mark, he doesn't give us a ton of detail, but briefly records this conversation they start having on the way back down the mountain. Jesus is instructing the disciples to keep that vision that they had just had, that this amazing moment, keep it to themselves until he's risen again. And this is great because finally it seems like Jesus is actually telling them when they can say something, when they can go public, because up to this point, he's always just said, be silent. But this confuses the disciples even more because the problem is they cannot comprehend of him rising from the dead apart from the last days. They'd grown up believing, yeah, there's going to be a resurrection someday, but that's at the end of time. And now Jesus is talking about raising from the dead. Uh, so from their standpoint, they're, they're just assuming he's talking about the last days of time. But that creates another problem for them, right? Because if, if he's here, then, then what about Elijah? Right? Elijah was supposed to come first before the last time, but here you are talking about raising from the dead. So using the only filter they have, they start to question Jesus. And Jesus' response is, at the time, not immediately clear to them, but in time, they begin to fully understand it. He says Elijah did come first. He came, in the, he came as John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. And look at the way they treated John. Right? We know from reading previously in Mark that John had been beheaded. John had been ignored. So the scriptures foretold that Elijah would come first. But the Scriptures also told that the Son of Man must suffer. It's just that you guys gloss over that part. Elijah did come, and he suffered. And Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to suffer. They're going to do the same to me. The disciples, like you and I, are prone to assume that to suffer, right, is wrong, that that bad things only happen to bad people god could never use suffering for his good that's not possible god only means for good we can never ever ever have suffering in our lives ever that's wrong right maybe you've heard that health wealth prosperity you believe the gospel you get good stuff everything is hunky dory that's actually not bible that's nonsense suffering was actually a part of god's plan how how do i mean that well again christ must die so that we might live the glory of christ was his. He was and indeed, he was and is the son of God, and he did indeed suffer on our behalf that we could be reconciled to God, and he does indeed ask often for us to suffer for his name's sake. As for Elijah, right, he had come in the person of John the Baptist, and they rejected his message and killed him, and the same is going to happen with Jesus. John fulfilled the assignment given to him by God, and so would Jesus. God would faithfully, see them through suffering in the greatest hours of their trial and tribulation. So might we not be able to trust him to do the same for us? This is difficult. Right? I read stuff like this, and I'm like, this week, really? Can't we just like, be fun? Like, can't I just talk about Jesus healing people? Because no one wants to like, get up on Sunday morning and be like, man, I can't wait to talk about suffering. It's hard, right? Yet, we just came out of, probably for many of us, the most difficult year of our lives, where people were ill, where jobs were lost, where there was hardship and pain, and we're like, God, where are you? I think Romans 8 gives us a little bit of clarity. Romans eight twelve through 17 says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death that we may also be glorified with him. Here's what I'd say to you, friends. Every pain in your life, every frustration in your life, every conflict in your life, every difficulty in your life that you experience, walking on the path toward the inheritance is suffering with and for Jesus. It's not just when people ridicule you because of your faith, it's everything. Because it's either being used by the devil to threaten your faith, or used by God to strengthen your faith. And if you will embrace the way verse 17 says, as your pathway to glory, God is triumphant then, and the devil is defeated. It doesn't matter if it's a stub toe on the way to go shopping, how you handle a stub toe in relation to God Almighty bears witness to your faith and His providence. If you're in His face saying, Man, I'm so tired, God, of getting stubbed toes. I don't need another problem today. This is a bad day. Look, Coram Deo, if you're not in hell, it's a good day. Okay, it is. Why would God ordain that the pathway for us to receive this inheritance, why, why is there suffering? We know that it's not only suffering, right? I'm not trying to preach some weird asceticism up here where we whip ourselves and do nonsense. Nothing like that. No, no, no. It's not only suffering, right? We, we, are, we know that we can have nice things, right? We're under a roof today. We're not getting rain poured under, on us. We have joys. We have comforts. But we know that God does allow suffering in our lives. Why? Because it produces something in us. Why does it say in Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God? That's Acts 14, For the same reason that Christ has set his face towards Calvary. Because there's no other way. Why would God allow this? When well, we get an idea from Romans 5, 3. I know I'm, I'm bringing you to a point. Just track with me for a minute. Not only that, but this is what Romans 5, 3 says. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance of what? faith well how does that work every hardship right from the tiniest stub toe to the loss of a spouse or child from the smallest thing to the biggest thing every hardship in your life is kicking out from under you a prop that is supporting your happiness and you can either curse god or fall on him And God is allowing these props to fall in our lives, that we would fall on him because that's, friend, that, friends, is what makes us strong, what gives us hope, what gives us joy. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9, he's writing to this church in Corinth, and he says this pretty intense statement. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God had used Paul to go all over the known world to preach and teach the gospel. And constantly, Paul deals with hardship after hardship after hardship. God had allowed Paul to get to the brink of death for one reason. There was only one person to trust now. God, who raises the dead. Friends, all of our hardships are designed to make our faith stronger, to make us rely more on God. Again, the enemy would use them to squelch out our faith, but God is so good that he uses even that which is meant for evil, for our good. That's why it's the pathway to glory. We have to trust him. Faith is the only way to glory. And tribulations, they serve our faith. If the Holy Spirit is testifying in your heart that he is your father, then you're gonna trust in him. If he's not, then you get angry at God. You say, I don't want this anymore. I'm out of here. If this is the way he's gonna treat his children, then I'm out of here. Then friend, I would say, if that's the way you react to suffering, You might question whether or not you actually have the Spirit of God. Maybe you haven't yet experienced the glory of Christ like these disciples just did. Because when we experience that truth, the Holy Spirit stirs our heart to say, Father, I need you. This is hard. It's really hard. But you're my Father, and Jesus is my Lord. And this is the pathway to inheritance, so I'm all in. Help me, Lord. That's the way the Holy Spirit talks. So if you respond to hardship with, I need the Father, I need Christ my Lord, and the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with your spirit that you indeed are a child of God. I'm going to close with a story from John Newton that hopefully will help make this make sense. Maybe you're like, Billy, you're saying a lot of things. You've read a lot of verses. Hopefully this will help. Something I come back to over and over in conviction. If you want to, Billy, I just need a Bible verse to convict me. Here you go. Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Let's pray. No, I'm, I'm kidding, right? That's a hard verse, right? It's so hard. Because guess what I do all the time? Grumble and complain. Like, just to, like I, I, let me just demystify Billy for you guys. If you guys are like, man, Billy, you're holy. and so, I'm not. Okay, I came in, and the first thing I said this morning when, when Becca Wilcox got here was like, we got to make coffee, and it's got to be this way. It's got to be perfect. And i like, I don't know if that's good enough. Like, grumbling and disputing is just what I do, and I have to repent of it. It's a, such a condemning verse in the Bible. All things without complaining. All things without grumbling. So John Newton, writing in the 18th century, right, there's no cars, there's only carriages. So, so just picture this with me. Picture a horse-drawn carriage. A man is on his way to New York to get an inheritance. Here's what happens, right? He's on his way to New York to receive this amazingly large inheritance. Let's just say it's worth $10 million. And his carriage should break down a mile before he gets into the city, which obliges him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we see him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken! My carriage is broken. He's on the way to an inheritance worth millions of dollars. He can fix the carriage. Friends, Jesus is looking at these men who are not seeing him. They have the inheritance of a lifetime. Jesus just showed them his glory, his splendor. This is the prize, guys. This is what we're focused on. Quorum I kind of want to pull you aside like my middle school coach did me and remind you of the prize that we have in Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ goes forward the same way it always has through broken people like us. And so I pray for you, for me, that the glory of Christ would encourage us that one day we will behold who he is in splendor and that that would fire us up to do the work of ministry that we would set our eyes on the prize and know that whatever this life has to offer me, we have such a great reward awaiting us. We have hope and joy and restoration and life and life eternal. This is why when we read about people like Cory Ten Boom or Bonhoeffer, we're just dumbfounded. How could these people have so much joy when it seems like everything's going against them? Why would Henry Nouwen sell everything he has and go and live with these people who cannot care for themselves Because. They are like a man who found a treasure in a field and sold everything he had so that he could buy it and have this amazing treasure. Friends, nothing in this world will satisfy you. Cars break down. (laughs) Relationships crumble. Jobs end. But Christ is still with us on the mountain, in the valley, all the way. The British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said the Son of God became man that the children of men might become children of God. Jesus Christ is the hero of the Bible. God in a body, the Savior of sinners, the final sacrifice, and the glory of God made flesh. And he took these three disciples up a mountain for a glimpse of his glory, and he wants to take you and me to glory forever. So will you follow him? Will you trust him? You become. What you behold. May we all behold Jesus now and forever. Quorum Deo. Listen to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you acknowledging that we are so often wrapped up in ourselves. We, we get so lost like the disciples. We, we, we're just, we think about our weak, what went wrong. We're like a man walking towards his inheritance, complaining and frustrated. Lord, would we set our eyes above? Would we look up? Would we behold your glory? And would it be a flag of resolve in our hearts that lead us onward? Despite hardships, despite pain, despite suffering to see that we have joy right here, right now for all eternity. Would we cling to you, Lord? Would we trust in you? Would we be a people who seek you above all else? Would we listen? pray all this in confidence in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Coram Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, coramdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.